following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon text is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's Word. How's everybody doing this morning? Amen. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus' prayer. When Jesus prays, right? When Jesus prays is what we're calling kind of this mini-series inside of this series that we're walking through in the Gospel of John. When Jesus prays. Have you ever asked yourself, what would it sound like to hear the God of the universe pray? What would it sound like to hear the God of the universe pray? Because this is one of those great moments that leaves you in this kind of mysterious, jaw-dropping awe as to, well, what's going on here? He is God, God the Son, and yet he's praying. And how, how, does, this, how does this work? God the Son praying. If God prayed, what would he pray for? You ever ask yourself that? What, what, what would God the Son pray for if he were to pray? Pray for a bigger house, maybe. Maybe the houses in Jerusalem and Bethlehem weren't up to his quality, up to his standard. Maybe a little bougie. Would he pray, would he pray for another car, you know, or bigger chariots? What would the God of the universe pray for? Jesus in John chapter 17 prays for glory. He actually prays for three things in this prayer. First, the first part, which we'll focus on today, the next part we'll focus on next week, and then the week after. Um, But the first part of this prayer is for glory. He prays for glory. He makes a request for glory, and in that request, we have a a couple of ground, a groundings that we need to try to process, and that is he's making this request, but, but why does he make this request? And how can he make this request? And then, and then after we understand how can he make this request, then we have to ask ourselves why. So how does he make a request for glory, and, 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 and why does he make a request for glory? In other words, what we're talking about is the request, but then underneath the request, there's the capacity for the request. How can he make such a request, the capacity for it? But then underneath that, or, or next to that, there is this idea of the purpose of the, the request. Why would he make such a request for glory? Because he is praying for glory. Now, the first thing we need to understand about this request as we focus in on it is that it, it is a request to be glorified, but it's not like most requests for glory. Most requests for glory are packaged with expectations of wealth and prominence, riches, health, power, prestige. 
Jesus' request for glory, however, travels a different road. See, this request for glory, this request that's going to lead to elevation, that's going to lead to him being seated in the highest of seats, is a request that is elevation by descent. In order for him to get to the highest seat, he must go to the lowest place. Christ must be brought to the lowest of depths in order to be lifted to the highest of heights. He's requesting glory, but he's requesting glory through persecution, glory through suffering, glory through his own death, his own crucifixion. That's the means by which he is glorified. That's what he's talking about right here when he makes the request for glory. And he's fully aware of this as he prays. He is praying fully aware of God's will for him as he says, glorify me. He's not saying glorify me with the idea that God, that God, God the Father is going to hand him, you know, a, a, a raw deal at the end of this, right? He's not saying glorify me and then saying on the cross, to, you know, a couple, couple of days later, wait a second, I didn't know this is what you, this is what you meant. You know, I, th- I thought you were going to glorify me by giving me a bunch of cars and houses and chariots. That's not, that's not. That's not what's going on here. He is fully aware that as he is praying for glory, that glory is leading him down a trail of descent. John chapter 12, it says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will, be, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's what he says to us about our road to glory. Right before that, he says about himself, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. And if it dies, it bears much fruit. It has to die in order to bear much fruit. The glory of fruit production requires death, is what Jesus is saying, talking about himself. But he doesn't leave it. He doesn't leave it just as a lesson to be observed for himself. He talks to that in reference to us as well. He's showing us that glory goes a different way in the kingdom. He expects all those that follow him to understand this and embrace this, which is why he says right after he talks about his own death, that whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. He says, if anyone serves me, follow me. He must follow me, and where I am, there will he be. Where I am, there will she be. Well, where is he? On the road to death in order to find life. And he says the Father will honor him, so elevation will come, but what has to happen? Same thing that has to happen for him, death. Are you tracking with that? The call to follow him in the declaration that whatever he is, or wherever he is, his servant is, will be and is directly connected to the preceding statements. Where will Jesus be? He will be in the lowliest of places, the place where he must face rejection and suffering and sacrifice, and that's where we must be. But what's interesting is that as he's describing his path to glory, he describes our own paths. In other words, he's saying, listen, this is not just me, this is us. This is you. If anyone serves me, the Father will elevate him, but he has to go the lowly path. If there is one thing that messes with our westernized sensibilities, our westernized thinking, our American thinking, if there's one thing that messes with that, it is the idea that, if, that, that, that we can be exalted only through power, wealth, strength, 
Rather than our exaltation comes in the exact opposite means, humility, lowliness, sacrifice. Saw a prominent Christian leader on Twitter this week ranting and raving, yelling about the current cultural and political wars, making, making this, and he made this unfortunate observation as he was ranting and raving. Christians need to stop electing nice guys, talking about just politics in general. They might make great Christian leaders, but the, but the world needs street fighters. Another way of saying that is, I know what Jesus says about how we should act in the church, but you can't really expect to apply that in real life. You tracking with that? Now, don't judge him too harshly. By the way, I'm not talking about Republican and Democrats. You guys know where I stand on this kind of thing. But don't, don't judge him too harshly because we reject, the path to be, we reject the path to be exalted by God as well and exalted in God as well quite often. For example, when the waiter brings out the wrong order for the second time and misses filling your drink for the third. We resort to harshness, don't we? Lashing out in the midst of our suffering. Why? Well, because we, not only should we not expect any form of mild discomfort in our minds, we shouldn't expect it, but the only way to address that mild discomfort is with what? Fire and fight and power. Not with humility and lowliness, gentleness. That's for wimps who don't want to see results, except for Jesus. Jesus says that he is taking a path to glory in the most unconventional way. As Jesus declares this hour has finally arrived, he realizes that glory due his name is coming in a different way. But also he prays not just with full awareness of what is in front of him, but with full confidence. He prays, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Jesus knows that even though this hour will lead him to his own crucifixion on Calvary's cross, it will leave him not only glorified, but in a position to glorify. He knows where he's going, and yet he sees it as preparing him to bring glory. How many times do you see your road to suffering as a means to glorify God, right? The world tells you that the only way you can glorify him is to have stuff, right? Who can glorify God poor? I don't know, maybe Jesus. Who can glorify suffering? I don't know, maybe Jesus. Jesus' prayer is to glorify me in order that I may glorify you. Whereas Jesus is fully confident that there will be no greater work done on earth than that, that which will bring glory to the Father, even though it will be the greatest level of suffering to the Son. He trusts in the Father's will so much so that he knows that this devastating act that's on the front, that's on the radar, that's about to happen, will not only lead to him being glorified and highly exalted, but to the Father being glorified and highly exalted through him. And it is for this reason that he fully submits to it. He fully submits to the Father's will. Even though he's fully aware of it, he's fully confident of it. And because he's fully confident of it, he fully submits to it. 
In John chapter 12, Jesus talks about this very hour that's coming, and he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So, Father, glorify your name is what he says in the next words, in his next words. He says, should I say save me from the suffering that's coming in this hour? Should I say save me from the pain and the anguish that's coming in this hour? No, 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 no. I'm fully aware of it, but I'm fully confident in what God, is, God the Father is doing. So I say, Father, glorify your name in this hour through this very act of my death. Now, that doesn't mean that it isn't hard. He says in that same verse, my soul is troubled. In other words, I acknowledge that what this hour is heavy. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he acknowledges as he is praying back to the Father that this hour is heavy. Lord, if it be thy will, let this, let this cup pass from me. Father, if it be thy will, rather, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He understands that it is heavy, but he is fully confident that following God's will, following his Father's will, lands him in the place of glory. And so he's willing to go. It leads us to this next point. He's making this request for glory, fully aware, fully confident, fully obedient. But how can he make it? Why should the Son be glorified in the Father's name? Which leads us to the capacity for glory. I'm not sure if you're paying attention, but this request in Jesus' prayer is not a normal one. He is saying, glorify me. Who prays that kind of prayer? Do y'all do pray that prayer at home? Wake up in the morning. Yeah, Lord, bless my job and bless my kids and glorify me. Make me great. Is that, that the kind of prayer you pray? No. If one of your children, you stumbled in the room and one of your children were praying that prayer, you'd be looking over your shoulder waiting for your children to knock you off and take all your wealth or something. Like, what in the world are they doing? Why, how they, what kind of prayers are they praying? What kind of shoddy business are they going to be up to five years from now? Glorify me is what we associate with, with, some, with some sort of power-hungry villain. Like Skeletor and He-Man. That's the kind of stuff he would say. What in the world is this? Glorify me? How dare he say that? This is not a normal request in Scripture. The Old Testament prophets serve as our witness in these words. Isaiah chapter 42. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory. Listen, I give to no other. I don't give glory away. God, the, God says. Isaiah 48, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. It doesn't give glory away. Even the psalmist in, old, in the Old Testament crafting lyrics to be sung by the church of God says in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory. Don't glorify us, God. Glorify yourself. Jesus is 
sitting over here praying, glorify me. How can he do that? Why would Jesus ask for that? He gives us more in the following verse. He says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since. The sense the request to the grounds for the request. Since. What's the first grounds for this request? Why should the son receive glory from the father? Since you have given him authority over all flesh. The father should glorify the son because the son has received the authority over all creation. Son carries the capacity to hold all creation. And if he carries the capacity to hold all creation, then he also carries the capacity to hold the glory. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 talks about Christ in these words. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in him and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, Christ. All things were created for him, Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything in the universe, every molecule is sustained in space. Why? Because of Christ, Jesus. He carries the capacity to ask for the glory. Verse 8, Colossians 1 says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He makes the request because he carries the worth to make it. He is worthy to make the request. He further demonstrates that in verse 5 of chapter 17 of John, where it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now listen to those words. The glory I had before, or the glory I had with you before the world existed. The glory I had with you. It is a glory that is shared. Wait a second. I thought God said he gives his glory to no one. And yet, Jesus is saying, I have it. I shared it with you. The glory I had with you. God shares his glory with no one, so how could Jesus pray, Father, glorify me? It is because he himself is what? God. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word that was made flesh. In John chapter 1 verse 14, the word was with God. And the word was God. Matthew chapter 1 says that when this, when this baby is born, the angels declare that you shall call this child Emmanuel. And why should you call him Emmanuel? Because Emmanuel means what? God with us. The glory I had with you, I shared this glory because I was a part of the triune Godhead. 
But he says, I had it with you, and I had it with you when? Before the world existed. We're not talking about a mere man who is praying a prayer at the end of his life. We're talking about one who has forever existed alongside God the Father. And so he prays a prayer that only he himself can sustain and carry. Are you tracking with that? Before creation itself was there, I was there with you sharing in this glory. And that's what I'm praying now, that you would glorify me with the glory that we had before the world existed. And that you would glorify me through the depths of suffering and pain and anguish. You say, to what end? Which is the third point, the final point, the purpose. To what end is this glory to be manifested in Jesus Christ? We talked about that word in verse 2, the word since. Since. Since I have been given all authority, then I have the capacity. That means I, I am worthy to request that you glorify me with the glory that we have before the foundations of the world. But also that sense connects us to another thought. And I hold it right there just to, ponder, just to ponder for a moment. Let me ask you this. How fascinating of a thing is this pursuit of glory when we think about it? Jesus' pursuit of glory is not simply for himself. How often do we hear people that pursue glory but pursue glory for their own selfish means? And here Jesus pursues glory in order to glory someone else. Glorify me that I may glorify you. You're tracking with that. That's heavy. His glory is for the glory of the Father. Jesus' pursuit of glory is not just for Jesus. Jesus' pursuit of glory is for the Father, but his pursuit of glory is not only for the Father, but his pursuit of glory is for the people of God. Father, glorify me. Well, you say, well, how, how so? Well, how is he going to glorify the Father? His glory included a pursuit of you. His pursuit of glory included a pursuit of you. Normally, a pursuit of glory leaves others behind, doesn't it? A pursuit of glory requires that people are betrayed. A pursuit of glory requires that people are trampled upon. A pursuit of glory normally requires that people are overlooked and cast aside. And the, shark, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the strongest shark in the tank. Rises victorious, right? Jesus' pursuit of glory, listen, instead of trampling on us, Jesus' pursuit of glory required that he be trampled upon. In order that we might be made righteous in him. Jesus' pursuit of glory, instead of betraying us, required that he himself be betrayed in order that we might be accepted. Jesus' pursuit of glory, instead of forsaking us, required that he be forsaken by all in order that we would never be left alone.
Jesus' pursuit of glory was not just, however, a winning of people into ownership by God. Not simply ownership by God, but Jesus' pursuit of glory was a winning of people into fellowship with God. We were purchased, yes. We were bought with a price, yes. Therefore, we are to glorify God in our bodies. That's what the Apostle Paul tells the church of Corinth in Corinthians 1. But, but, we are also adopted. That's what the Apostle Paul tells the church at Romans. That we are adopted into a family, that we've been made heirs to the inheritance given by God. And that we've been made joint heirs to the inheritance given by God with our elder brother, who has made us through him and his work, we've been made heirs. And now we are called sons and daughters. The glory arrives in the form of people saved through his sacrificial death and not through their works of their own, but they are saved through or saved through his death for good works in order that men and women might see them and do what? Do what? Glorify. There's a, there's a word again. So the salvation of souls brings what? To the Father. Glory. Glorify me, Lord. Glorify me, Father. Right? Glorify the Son. And in return, what will the Son do? Glorify you. And how will he do so? By bringing a people to you. By winning a people with his very own blood. And in so doing, he will bring you glory. So back to the sense in verse 2. The second and the final ground for Jesus' Jesus's request is the what for. Why should you be glorified? To what end will you be glorified? To what end will you be glorified? What will this glory lead to? If you are glorified, what will this glory lead to? It will lead to the glory of the Father. And how will it lead to that? Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The glory of the Father will come as Jesus gives eternal life to all those that the Father has given him. How will he give them that? Through his death. And then he explains eternal life, my final thought. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so, folks, listen, the purpose of God's glory is good for us all. Because in the glory of the Son, not only is the Father being glorified, but a people are being pursued. You are being pursued and being offered eternal life as he pursues his own glory. But, but notice that it says the eternal life is that they know you. Eternal life is not simply knowledge about God. Knowledge concerning God, knowledge regarding God. It's not a collection of facts. Eternal life is knowing God. 
Knowing God requires knowledge of God, knowledge regarding God, knowledge concerning God, but it's not simply, it's simply limited to that. See, I can know of my wife. I can, I can know things regarding my wife. I can know things concerning my wife and never know my wife. Eternal life is knowing God. And so again, it is not simply just bringing you into ownership, but it is bringing you into fellowship with God. Eternal life, relationship with God. That's what eternal life is. And so eternal life actually is not just a destination. Eternal life is not a place to go. Some people think that eternal life is simply limited and confined to the, to the ideal and the locale of heaven. No, eternal life is where God is. And so, and so heaven is where it is fully realized, but it is not where it begins. Yeah. Eternal life begins when relationship is established with Jesus Christ. Because eternal life is the forever endeavor of growing in our knowledge and fellowship with the Savior. Eternal life moves us past just intellect, intellect and it moves us into intimate fellowship. Eternal life moves us more or moves us beyond heaven, and it moves us into the fellowship of the God, fellowship with God, or into fellowship with the God of the universe. Folks, heaven, heaven ain't heaven if God ain't there. And see, this is, the, this is the thing that separates just people who have a cultural Christianity from people who have a genuine professing faith in Jesus Christ. There's some people looking for fire insurance. Are you tracking? And so they would have no issue if Jesus wasn't in heaven. Because my friends are there, my family's there, and, and, and other people are there. And I got, a big, I got a big mansion on a hill, and that's not eternal life. That's not eternal life. You know, do you understand that? That's, that's not eternal life just to have some good things there. Heaven is heaven because he is there. Eternal life is what it is because of knowing him. He's the treasure, not the stuff there. He's the treasure. And so our pursuit, our drive should start now. We, should, we don't have to wait until we die in, or, in order to start experiencing eternal life because we can know him now. Pursue him now. Pray and ask the Lord to show, show you himself now. Embrace the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ now. Let the gospel work inside of your soul and your heart now. Eternal life is a position and a posture, not just simply a place. So the pursuit of glory includes the establishment of this family. That's what he's doing, right? What he's doing is what's in this room right now. This was a product of God's pursuit of glory. So create a people for himself that would glorify him. And so it is to our good that Jesus prays for his own glory. It's to our eternal joy that Jesus prays for his own glory. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We appreciate you. 
We ask, Lord, that you would continue to help us, Lord God, work through this passage, this, this, this high priestly prayer that your son prayed. And Father, we rejoice in the fact that he prayed for his glory because we know, Lord God, that, 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 his, that him being glorified is, is for the good, not just of Christ alone, but it is for the good of the entire universe, Lord, that, that he be glorified, that he be highly lifted up, that he be exalted, Lord. There is no better place for any of us than Jesus, high and lifted up and praised and worshiped by all men and women. And so, Lord, we ask not to us. We pray not to us. We don't want the glory, Lord God. To your name be all the glory, because we know if you are glorified, Lord. And Father, we're all right. So, Lord, move in our hearts to continue to seek that aim, to push towards glorifying your son and glorifying you. And, Father, if there be any in this room who do not know you, we ask, Lord, that, Father, this day, that they would turn from their sin that they would turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the one who died for them, and that they would embrace him as Lord, embrace him as Savior, in order that they might begin to live the eternal life and know you and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.